Well, my thanks to Bobby and the worship team and our brother Pete for reminding us about uh, Memorial Day weekend, for honoring those who have given their all for our freedom and to remind us about those who have gone before us. Uh, It is Memorial Day weekend and it's week two of not having to wear a sweater or a long sleeve shirt, you know, so I'm kind of dressed appropriately for a, a holiday weekend. Um... But as we're getting into this this morning's message, I want to ask you, what are some things you look at and say, you know, that just ought not be. That shouldn't be. Maybe it's uh, vegan hamburgers, right? It's like they're trying to pass these things off as real burgers and you just kind of, eh, it doesn't taste the same. You know, if that's your choice, okay, cut your losses and move on, but don't say these taste just like real hamburgers. Or maybe, uh, how about this? Older men wearing skinny jeans. I mean, I don't find that look attractive on any man. But, you know, I mean, I just kind of go, okay, dude, know your age. You know, know what generation you're from. Don't try and be that hip old guy. Just know who you are. Or how about this one, if you live here in Rochester? The new parking ordinance they put in, in place this last fall. You know, that you should park your car only on the even side of the addresses during the even days and the, you know, on the odd side of the street during the odd days with the addresses, you know. Of course, this is, I, I get it, it's for snow removal, right? But it's also for street cleaning. I think I saw that take place like one time during this whole six-month period. And then they also enforce it on Sunday. I mean, I'm just kind of going, well, what's going on here? Is parking at that great a premium? What are we, New York City? Forget about it. This ought not be. On a more serious note, though, things like a man leaving his wife and his kids to go off and live with another woman. Or when you're on the internet and you're trying to look something up and then this pop-up comes with some scantily clad woman. I mean, you could be even, even on a Bible site and that happens. Or a police officer who's sworn to protect and serve and yet they use that position to abuse and bully and use power over others. This ought not be. So today... As we get into God's Word, that's what we're going to see. Last week, Jesus entered into Jerusalem as its rightful king. The king of not only Israel, but all humanity. Jesus is the king, and he's acting like it. And so this week, we see Jesus, the rightful king, come and address some things. Come to clean house in the house of of the Lord. You see, he comes to address what's going on in God's temple by those who are in charge of God's temple. And we're going to look through three episodes or three pericope, if you will. If you don't know what that word means, look it up. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up right now. Chapter 19, starting at verse 45, and then we're going to go on over to chapter 20 into verse uh, 19. And we're going to see all these fit together. 
But Jesus addresses what's going on in the temple. And due to the nature of what the temple is supposed to be for, and the nature of what these leaders are supposed to be doing, we're going to see what's going on. Well, it ought not be. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word. So Lord Jesus, I thank you that you, you're the way, the truth, and the life. And you came to set things right in our hearts. And so I pray that you'll do that today, even as we see that sometimes we operate in ways that ought not be. Correct us, cleanse us, do in our hearts what we need have done that we might operate in a way that ought to be as you intended, as you want to live in our lives and be glorified. So come and do your work, I pray. And Lord Jesus, in your name I pray these things. Amen. So here we are, you guys. Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 45 through verse 48. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that is the scribes, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So personal gain ought not override connecting with God. Personal gain ought not override connecting with God. Again, this is more of a 35,000 foot view of how these things all fit together. But we're going to see, again, that those who are entrusted with care of the temple, of worship of the living God, they use their position. They used it for their own personal gain and their own protection. And here's something that's going to go through every part of every one of these pericope or episodes. Is that self is on the throne. Self-interest is at the center instead of the worship of God. And this is coming, again, from those who should be leading God's people in worship of himself. The Jewish temple was the center of all Jewish worship. It was a place where God dwelt. And it was a place to connect with God. And it's not limited to this, but it was a place where God was revealing himself. Remember back the very beginning of Luke A priest named Zechariah is visited by an angel to tell about a son that will be born to him. Not Jesus, John. John the Baptist, who would go ahead of Jesus. God is revealing himself what he's going to do. And then after Jesus is born, as he's brought to the temple, a man named Simeon recognizes Jesus as God's Messiah. And then another prophetess, Anna, is revealed. And both of that can be found in um, chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. But now, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is here at the temple. And without going into much detail, the chief priests and the Sadducees, who they were a part of, 
in the ruling uh, body called the Sanhedrin, they had turned the court of the Gentiles, which is this outer court around the main complex, they turned it into, really, a livestock market. And understand that Gentiles, that was the only part of the temple complex they could go. They couldn't go any further without risking their lives. And so, amongst all these animals, these critters are being sold, pigeons, goats, sheep, cattle for sacrifice. All this organized by the chief priests, by the Sadducees, for financially lining their pockets. How did they spell talking about a prophet? P-R-O-F-I-T. This is not a small market either. This is not like some little corner market. It's dominating the whole area. Josephus, the Jewish historian wrote that on the day that the temple was completed in 66 AD, there were 235,600 sheep slaughtered for sacrifice. Can you imagine that? Hormel or Tyson has nothing over that. I mean, that's a lot of carnage. That's a lot of, lot of animals. And again, this is all being operated under the guise of, oh, we're providing a service for worship, because, you know, we don't want you to go too far to bring, you know, a sacrifice. So bring your money, buy the sacrifice, and we'll provide it for you. The truth is, though, they made a stockyard out of God's temple. The motive was greed, not God. And a holy place set aside for pursuing God, for men and women, to call on the living God, <laughs> it was being exploited. It shouldn't be a place where, where you're trying to pray and you're being distracted by Billy Goat Gruff over here. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Or you're walking around and you're, just, you're trying to miss all the, you know, the animal poop. That's not a place for worship. This ought not be done in this place and it ought not be done by these men who are in charge of helping people know who the living God is, to point to him. And it was a perversion as well. Making the emphasis on sacrifice, really painting God as a God who's only interested in, in receiving an animal sacrifice. You give God what he wants, and he'll give, you what, he'll give you what you want, which is no different than all the other pagan gods around them. But again, Jesus as the rightful king, he comes to clean up and reclaim his father's house. And he does so physically and forcibly, right? He began, verse 45, he began to drive out those who were selling. I mean, he was, he was pushing them out. He was shoving. He was angry. He was reacting to what, what ought not be. So much for Jesus, meek and mild. But then he shines the truth of Scripture on them. This is not just, you know, a capricious act. He shows them from God's Word. Verse 46, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer. And the rest of that verse in Isaiah 56, verse 7, says it will be a house of prayer for all nations. Again, this is, the, this is the court of the Gentiles. This is as far as they can go. This is what the purpose of this, this space is supposed to be. 
But then he goes on quoting uh, uh, Jeremiah 7.11, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now let me read the whole passage in Jeremiah 7.11 to just give a little more context because something similar was happening to the temple at that time with Jeremiah. Has this house, which bears my name, become a, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. God basically is saying is, look, not only does this, you know, this reflect poorly on my name, but this is my house, guys. And I see it. I'm not unaware of this. And I'm God, by the way. Maybe you need to change how you're going about things here. These men who profess to live it according to the word of the living God. <laughs> you know, how they were living was different. But Jesus the King, he's come to reclaim and reclaim and, sh and restore the temple to its rightful use. And so it says in verse 47, every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. It's not, you know, he has a point. Maybe all these animals are distracting. Maybe, maybe it really is a distraction from worship of the living God. No. We need to get rid of him. We need to kill him. We need to violate the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. That's how we're going to do God's will. Not. The solution is get rid of him. You know, if these chief priests, these scribes, these elders had focused more on the purpose of God's temple, prayer, maybe they would have had more insight to who Jesus was. But right now all they see him as is a nuisance, a rebel, someone who's causing waves for them. You know, we who follow Christ... When self-interest is in the driver's seat, there's no way we can be conduits to help people cleanly see and connect with God. In fact, we end up acting contrary to the Word of God. We see others through the lens of jealousy, the lens of rivalry. We see them as people to conquer or overcome or eliminate and instead of loving others, we hurt them. Whether you're a leader or not, these things ought not be. We're called, as people who are loved by God, to love others. And here's a little secret of life. You know, the truth of the matter is we are most miserable when we're thinking about ourselves. We've got our focus on ourselves. But aside from that, from a cosmic perspective, 
This is a bad reflection upon God. He sees and it grieves his Holy Spirit within us. These things ought not be. Well, thus far, Jesus has kind of made these leaders look bad, right? And so they're going to give him some direct confrontation. Pick it up in chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, again, you know, Jesus is restoring the purpose here, in the temple courts, proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came to him and came up to him and says, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I'll ask you a question. Tell me. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? And if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where he was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Political expedience shouldn't supersede spiritual discernment. Political expedience should not supersede spiritual discernment. Again, Jesus, the King, is restoring the temple to its original purpose. Again, he's teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news. He's telling people what God is really like and what he's done to reconcile us to himself. He's giving them the gospel, the good news. The leaders, on the other hand, well, <laughs> the things are getting out of hand. They want to confront this outsider. I mean, he's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He doesn't work here. He's, he's not even a Pharisee. At least then he'd have some teaching credentials. And so they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And they're hoping that he's going to say from God, that he's going to slip of the tongue, because then they can accuse him of blasphemy. But Jesus knows the hearts of all men. And he's not going to reveal himself to those who are not honest with him or themselves. And so he answers a question with a question to flush them out. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? And what do the leaders do? They don't answer him right away. They uh, give us a moment and they confer. Now, if you've been with us in the Gospel of Luke, you see from the very beginning of the Gospel, John is given a special office to be the one who is the prophet of the Most High God. You see that in chapter 1, as it's revealed to Zechariah, the priest, his father. And he has been sent ahead to prepare the way of the Lord. And you can read about that in chapter 3. And he is a witness that Jesus is the Son of God. As he's there and he baptizes Jesus, and hears the father say, 
You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. As he sees the Holy Spirit come down on top of Jesus' shoulder in the form of a dove, he's a herald of what Jesus is going to do. And here's the problem for these leaders. They're in a pickle. You see, if they affirm what John has done, then they're essentially affirming what Jesus is doing. But the truth is, these leaders don't believe who John was. (sighs) A baptism of repentance? For what? Life is good here at the temple, right? So they just looked at him as a nuisance, someone to ignore. And perhaps they even were a little bit relieved when they heard he was beheaded by by Herod. And by the way, none of them sided with John saying, you know what, Herod, he's right. It isn't right for you to take your brother's wife. But they also have a problem. Because the people viewed John as a prophet, as from God. And if they acknowledge that John was from God, then it exposes their apathy and their hypocrisy. But if they deny John's from God, then they're exposed to unpopularity and perhaps stoning. Here's a good question, though. What man of God (laughs) operates trying to win a popularity contest? It doesn't work. You can ask John the Baptist about that one. But they answer according to their guiding principle which is self. Self Self-interest. Self-protection. We don't know where it was from. We don't know where he was from. You know, even if, you know, these leaders answered that he was from man, at least this would have opened up an open dialogue. But they're not trying to get to the truth. They're operating in self-protection. And so Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus is not trying to be tricky. He's not trying to be clever. He's not trying to be evasive. But he's not willing to reveal himself to those who aren't honest with him and aren't honest with themselves. And so when we operate in self-protection instead of responding to the truth God has revealed, he won't reveal himself to us. Protecting a lifestyle, a habit, an addiction, an attitude, a theological view, a comfort level, even a relationship. When God has clearly spoken to us in his word. Or it's obvious that God is at work. It makes us disingenuous when we can't recognize the truth because we don't want the truth. And blind to what God wants to show us. Self is the center instead of God. And that's the tragedy. Many of you are aware that this week, Christian speaker, an apologist, Ravi Zacharias passed away. And I was looking over some of the things that he had done, and somebody posted like one of the last talks he, he gave. And, and this was the quote from the talk. We live in the age of the selfie, and we're able, uh, unable 
to receive objective truth about who God is because we can't get our eyes off ourself. <laughs> I agree. I agree, but this is not something that's unique to this time. It's always been true. It's always been something that we have struggled with because we've always wanted to be in charge instead of allowing God to be in charge. And the truth of the matter, it will take an act of God to save us from ourselves. <laughs> but praise God, that's what's going on here. And what's happened to so many of our lives. A man named Saul, a hardcore Pharisee, who believed that only living by the law was the only way to be saved, so much so that he persecuted the Christian church, is changed into a man called Paul. Changing his life, changing his trajectory, and making him the most effective missionary in the first century and wrote most of our New Testament. A man named Nabil Qureshi. A man who grew up in a Muslim missionary home. Wanting to go out and prove that Christianity or Jesus was false. Somehow in his pursuit found that Jesus and the grace and compassion that he offers. And frankly, the connection back to God that he offers that was not offered in Islam. Because Nabil found that he wasn't even able to live up to the own standards of his own heart. He needed someone greater than that to do that for him. It changed him. Nabil was hiding behind Islam. But Jesus revealed to him the truth. Or a hardened and cynical reporter from Chicago named Lee Strobel <laughs> was cynical about any difference faith could make. And yet he started to see the changes in his own wife's life and found that he needed to pursue Jesus, find out who he really is, and actually found out that there are good, logical, and rational reasons to believe in him. And there's evidence there. So Jesus makes difference for the head as well as the heart. And then for a guy like me, Nathan Brand, who grew up in the church, being attracted to church, wanting to be that good church kid, but failing miserably, but then discovering somewhere along the way that Jesus didn't come to help make me righteous. No, Jesus is my righteousness. There's a difference. I'm not denying the change that Jesus starts to make in a man or woman's life. But what I'm saying is that I couldn't do it myself. Jesus has to do it for me. So what about you? Are you living in self-protection of something? Do you need Jesus to come and rescue you from that? Because when we hide behind self-protection, it just brings destruction and things that ought not be. That's what he wants to do for you.
Well, as we've seen, Jesus won't, you know, reveal himself explicitly. He goes the back door route through a parable, as he so often does, to expose the truth. Look at verses 9 through 19 of, of Luke chapter 20. He went on to tell them the par- the, the, He went on to tell them this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, and that one they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. Then he sent a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. (laughs) This is the heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked at them and asked, What then is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom that's, it falls will be crushed. <laughs> and the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. You see, when power and control, they can't override responding rightly to God. Power and control can't override responding rightly to God. Now Jesus goes right from this confrontation into, you know, from the previous exchange right into this parable. It's a parable about a vineyard. You know, God in his word in Isaiah told a similar parable about a vineyard that he planted, and he came to look for fruit, and it was bitter fruit. You can read about that in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. It produced bad fruit. But this parable is not about the vineyard itself. It's about those who care for it. Tenant farmers, whom the Lord of the vineyard, the owner, as it says in the NIV, had expected to share their fruit, but something happened. As the servants are sent, and this parable counts three, they're rebuffed, they're insulted, they're abused, even wounded or traumatized. That's the word we get trauma from. And it seems like the tenants forgot who owns this vineyard. And in the last-ditch effort, this is very interesting, you know, the owner doesn't immediately send the sheriff or the magistrate or even a posse to, to evict them. No, he 
says, you know what? We need to reconcile this. We need to make this right. Even though they're the ones who are, are violating what our agreement was. I'm going to send my son. My only son whom I love. And he's going to come. He's going to represent me. And he's going to be there to collect the fruit. But the tenants see him in a moment of greed, eager to control what's going on. They throw him out of the vineyard and they kill him. And they foolishly believed that now they would have ownership. And they overlooked the fact that not only would the Lord of the vineyard, the owner, come expecting them to rectify their refusal to honor his ownership without, by not giving them fruit, but he's going to bring judgment upon them for killing his son. The connection's not too veiled, is it? The tenants are like the chief priests charged with the care of the temple. And these tenants forget whose vineyard it is, just like these leaders forget whose temple it is. The fruit of worship and devotion to God that God is seeking, those who would follow him by faith, it has been degraded into worship of man-made tradition, of keeping up appearances, of rules and restrictions, of outward guise of devotion to God, yet really an homage to self-righteousness. Making pleasing these leaders the aim rather than pleasing the living God and keeping these leaders firm in control over the people, over this vineyard. Messengers are sent. The prophets. And there are more than three, obviously, in God's word. But John, as the last prophet, he is wounded. He is traumatized, if you will. And now God sends his beloved son, here representing the Father, asking for fruit. That is, the hearts of men and women. But whether they recognize him or not, these leaders see Jesus, see the Son as a threat over their control over the people, as their control over the temple. And their solution is to get rid of him, to kill him. And the result is the destruction of the tenants, the destruction of these leaders. And leadership will be given to others over God's people. Folks who are listening, and I'm not sure if they're making the connection or not, but their response is, may this never be. In fact, one of the translations in the NIV says, may God forbid, but it will be. Because the son and the king will be rejected. He will be killed. And those who should rightly honor him, they make sure that he's dead. And to make sure that his audience makes this connection, Jesus says this, verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them and asked them, what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Right out of Psalm 118, 
verse 22. By the way, which is also the psalm that's quoted on Palm Sunday. You can check it out. See, those who believe that they're in charge of building God's kingdom, well, they find out that God is putting things together differently than they thought. And then they find out that by rejecting God's king and Messiah, they're going to reap destruction of their very souls. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and anyone who, whom it falls will be crushed. Their reaction, because they know Jesus is talking about them, is to, to want to arrest him. But again, this is too public and they can't. But this comes to fruition. Their leadership ends historically in 70 AD when Rome invades Jerusalem. Their authority, their leadership is destroyed. But the kingdom of God continues because it's been given to others. The apostles who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ initially to Jewish people and they believe, but God is not done. This is good news for everybody. And through God's hand, even through persecution, the gospel spreads to the nations, to the Gentiles. And those people are welcomed into the kingdom of God because they welcome the king into their lives, into their hearts by faith. And they become the people of God. They become the fruit God is looking for. And this concept of cornerstone is interesting, isn't it? You know what a cornerstone is? It is a stone that is laid as a foundation where two walls meet together and become one building. That's who Jesus is. And this passage is quoted three other times in the New Testament. Acts 4.11, Romans 3.93, try it again, Romans 9.33, and 1 Peter 2 six through eight. Yes, he's rejected by men, but God uses him to build his kingdom. You see, when we seek control and power, instead of rightly responding to God, responding to his king, and that ought not be, by the way, the result is soul destruction. As we see the rest of the continue of, of this biblical narrative, all this is pointing to the fact that Jesus the King, the present leadership who should rightly be honoring him, are going to reject him. They're going to try, they're going to get rid of him. Put him to death. All because self sits on the throne. And we know that God is not overcome by this. He uses it to purchase our salvation. The irony is this, right? Jesus, who cleared out all the other sacrifices, becomes God's perfect and final sacrifice for us who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, as we know, death can't keep its hold over him. He rises 
from the grave to conquer death and give us life that we don't have in ourselves. But you know, today's passage again, it still points to us. It's no different. You know, we don't come to worship at a temple. We don't consider this a temple. But Jesus comes to the temple of each of our hearts, right? And the question is, who is going to rule and reign? Who's going to have control? Who is going to sit upon the throne? Is it going to be Jesus? Or is it going to be self? Self-interest. Self-protection. Our own individual control. Jesus really has come to clean house. To set things up as they ought to be. The question is, are we going to allow him to sit on the throne? Or are we going to continue to resist him from self? But here's also a secret. And this is true of the Christian life. It's not what we do but what he comes in and does in us. When we open the door, he is the one who comes and makes the changes. Let me just read for you out of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, just a a few words about what he's come to do. This is Ephesians 4, 20-24. That however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted in its deceitful desires, things that ought not be, if you will, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, That's Jesus. To be created like God in true righteousness and holiness. He's the one who comes to clean house and set things right in our hearts. With that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this passage where you came to set things right as far as worship in your temple. And you come now to set things aright in our hearts. And my prayer, Lord, is that we would not put ourselves in front of you on the thrones of our hearts. Whether that's self-interest, self-protection, or just wanting to control things, Lord. Would you give us grace to release and let you be the king, the king that we need to give us life? Because you came as God's beloved son to change us, to make us children of the living God. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, if there are people out there who need to respond to you for the first time, 
Would you give them grace to do that? And for those of us who know you, Lord, would you continue to give us grace to die to ourselves daily and let you rule and reign in our hearts and our lives? We are in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, be in us and do your work in us that we cannot do ourselves. And we're grateful, our King. Help us to walk in the newness of life you've given us. And Lord, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.